Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Graff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the Forum Founding Partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the Forum Strategic Partners, Cargill, the International Union for Conservation of Nature, the Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Food Systems. Today we're talking about the steady state economy uh, with Brian Check. He is the executive director of the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Well, thanks for having me, Robert. Uh, let's just jump straight into it. For listeners who may not be familiar, uh, could you provide a brief explanation of the concept of a steady state economy and how it differs from the one that we have today? I think when we start to uh, think about the steady state economy, it helps to remind ourselves exactly what economic growth is and then put it in contrast to that. So Economic growth, remember, is simply an increase in the production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate. And so that entails a growing population and or per capita production and consumption, usually both, growing population and per capita consumption. And that's uh, measured with GDP. And uh, a declining or degrowing or receding economy then is a decreasing level of production and consumption of goods and services in the aggregate, and that entails a declining population and or per capita production and consumption, and it's indicated by a declining GDP. And so the steady state economy is that sustainable option in between those two. It's a stabilized steady state with stabilized population and per capita production and consumption. And all else equal, it's uh, gauged by, indicated by uh, a stabilized GDP, not flatline, that can happen, uh, but it will be a, hopefully a, a relatively mildly fluctuating GDP. And ideally around an optimum level. How, how would you go about defining an optimum level of not a flat line, but a fluctuating GDP. What, how do you define the optimum level in such a, such a system? Well, at CASI, the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, we view that the, the identification of and the, the movement toward that optimum GDP as the biggest challenge for democracy in the 21st century. And, of course, theoretically, it could happen uh, in other types of political economy, not necessarily a democracy. But uh, in any event, optimality in a democracy is a matter of weighing the people's attitudes and opinions and preferences toward things like uh, green space versus urban area. 
the, the levels of tra the, the, the amount of congestion, traffic congestion, levels of noise versus the uh, um, availability of solitude and, and peace and nature. In terms of the, the things that can help the polity, the politicians and the citizens to figure out where they collectively are relative to that optimum level, you have metrics uh, you know, GDP, you can start with GDP, not as a measure of wellness, but just as the size of the economy, because that alone can tell you a lot of things about whether you're improving or going downhill. If your primary concern has become the environment, climate change or global heating, you might as well call it by now, global heating, biodiversity loss, uh, forever chemicals all over the environment, then you might say, you know what, that bloating GDP, $90 trillion globally, $21 trillion in the USA, that's too much. Look at these uh, formidable environmental problems. So there's an indicator that you need to lessen that. Uh, but you have other things like uh, the Living Planet Index, the Human Development Indicator, uh, the indicator of sustainable economic welfare, the genuine progress indicator, and there's a relatively long list of indicators that allow you to sort of figure out, uh, and, and in relative proportion, I would say, to the concerns of the citizens in a democracy. Some of them are going to be really concerned with the Living Planet Index, others more so with the HDI. That's an interesting point, because you have, you mentioned some of these alternative indicators of, of societal well-being or societal growth that are not uh, GDP. But could you not make the argument and say, well, we could keep growing the GDP. The question is not so much the growth, it's the distribution. We could say tax wealth or tax different instruments differently and then just funnel that money towards environmental goals or more green spaces or all those things. How is that fundamentally different from a, a steady state economy? Well, because we see the, the goal of sustainable scale, the size of the economy fitting within the limitations of the planet and the country as a distinct issue from an equitable distribution of wealth. In fact, uh, in ecological economics, we have three main themes, scale, distribution, and allocation. And those entail three very different approaches in terms of the goals of sustainable scale, uh, just distribution, and efficient allocation of resources. So no, and in fact, in fact we would say that... Uh, you're doing everyone, virtually everyone, a disservice, an unjust act by pulling the rug out from, first of all, your own feet, but your kids' and grandkids' future as you continue to push for a bloating economy when it's evident that, you know, that has uh, very much become unsustainable at this point in history. And we're living on borrowed time, uh, which is the... We're liquidating the stocks of natural capital. That's what, you know, some people say, well, what do you mean it's not sustainable? We're still growing the economy, or we were pre-COVID at least, and kind of bouncing back in, in places at least now. But that's because we're liquidating the, the stocks of natural capital 
that uh, upon their, their liquidation will result more in a collapse rather than a tapering off to a steady state. So in a steady state economy, would there be an end to natural resource extraction or are we simply talking about a case of sustainable management? Oh, there's, there's no such thing as an economy with the end of natural resources. Uh, that that's, should be maybe lesson number one for sustainability studies. The, uh, the real economy is founded upon the agricultural and extractive surplus that frees the hands for the division of labor into all the other stuff, including you know, the, the plethora of, of service sectors, but with all the intermediate manufacturing sectors as well. And so uh, we, in fact, the real economy and the monetary economy, the, the money supply needs to reflect the level of economic activity. Otherwise, as we see now, we get what? Inflation. So, you know, we were, we were uh, warning about inflation by February of 2020 when all the loose money uh, notions and, and stimulus payments and everything were coming out. And here we are, you know, two years later now with uh, uh, that being one of the biggest problems that everyone's facing. We've had on this podcast before a number of guests uh, with a significant interest in uh, the circular economy in taking end products and recycling their component parts through and through again and again in the industry. Is there a significant overlap between a circular economy and a steady state economy or are these different concepts and different ways of arranging the economy in your view? Well, they're different and we would warn, I suppose is a good enough word for it, warn that there's no such thing as a completely circular economy. That would be in violation of the second law of thermodynamics, you know, the entropy law. There will be waste. There must be waste in the economic production process. And uh, we need to, to realize that it's not the, the process of producing goods and services it's more of a transformative process whereby, at, again, at the base of the economy, you have the agricultural and extractive product that comes to the markets and then is, you know, in market economies, and then is converted to manufactured goods. And, uh, and then the service sectors, for the most part, are there to serve the, the regular old non-service set, you know, the goods sectors. Uh, they're assisting with the, the production of, of goods and the health of the labor force and so on. So uh, the circular economy, we on the other hand appreciate, uh, not the circular economy, but people who are in the circular economy movement, if we want to call it that, because we certainly appreciate the efforts to reduce waste. And there is a tremendous amount uh, of progress that remains to be made. And so maybe where the two come together, Robert, is in the buying of time, in the transition from a growth economy to a steady state, we might say, okay, well, how can we possibly do that? We're already, you know, we've liquidated stocks of natural capital in many areas, and maybe we need to 
uh, go through a, a horrendous collapse before we get down to a, a steady state that truly is sustainable in the long term. But, you know, there's a lot of fat in the economy, you might say, both in consumption, but also in the, the, per, the transformation process where, yes, there is a lot of waste. So the efforts uh, to keep that, the process a little tighter and less wasteful, we agree with that. But we, we, would, uh, we would encourage people to think more in terms of a flow of throughput uh, rather than a circularity with 100% recycling, which isn't possible, much less economically or politically or socially feasible. So let's work on the presupposition that, I don't know, genie out of a bottle, you wave a magic wand. Uh, there is, a, we get into a position where a steady state economy exists. You briefly mentioned uh, stocks of natural capital. In such a system, are these stocks of natural capital still depleted or are you trying to reinvigorate or resupply them how does that work in terms of land or the rainforest for example maybe the easiest one yeah well you know going back to natural resource economics 101 we have renewable and we have non-renewable resources and so some of the energy resources for example fossil fuels those aren't managerial sense with uh, managerial time frames, let's say, uh, those aren't renewable. You, once you extract them and, and, you know, combust them for power, well, they're gone. And, uh, and most minerals are uh, pretty much like that. Yes, there is recycling. Well, we just talked about the limitations of that. And, uh, but then we also do have renewable resources, uh, you mentioned forests, forests, uh, you know, timber and, and biodiversity. If, if you haven't depleted it or degraded it too far already, well, then these are renewable resources, uh, meaning that you can, they can be recovered to a level that uh, is, is, well, is higher, <laughs> of course, than than when they were severely depleted. However, I, I, once again, we have to issue kind of a warning, I guess. Biodiversity can only take so much loss. Uh, when a species is extinguished, it goes extinct, there's no bringing that back. You know, yes, there's some talk about in the laboratory, in vitro the production of, you know, uh, woolly mammoth and stuff like that. But Let's be realistic. Biodiversity with any level of ecological integrity, when that's gone, that's gone. And uh, especially in a world of global heating, when temperature is such a uh, fundamental variable in the uh, composition, structure, and functioning of ecosystems, you know, when that's messed up beyond repair, which is what we're, what we're experiencing now in global heating, then uh, those aren't recoverable and or renewable resources. I wanted to turn now to a specific briefing paper that was on uh, the website of your uh, of your center uh, on agriculture in a steady state economy, uh, wherein you state that there is a need for a stable population uh, to help balance production and consumption, which seems fair if you want to create a steady economy. But how does one achieve a, a steady population? 
Robert, that depends a lot on the, the country. If we're talking about at a national level, it uh, depends a lot upon whether the, the population dynamics are being affected primarily by the, the native, if you will, birth rate uh, and mortality rate versus the immigration and emigration flows. So in the USA, for example, right now there is a relatively steady state of population aside from immigration. Uh, with immigration, it brings it more into, a, well, it's, there's a positive uh, population growth rate. And so that's a very, very heavily politically charged issue, but I might as well deal with it right here and now and tell you what we say. And, and you mentioned our website, steadystate.org. I think you will find some materials there on this as well. So we take a very, uh, I'm going to say unique because we haven't found other entities taking this position. But we say this, we say we do need to stabilize population at some point to have a stabilized and sustainable steady state economy. Uh, however, we're not going to be for tightening the borders and keeping uh, people out of the country if the goal of the USA is still GDP growth. That would be stupid from uh, the standpoint of national security, frankly. We would be an uh, enemy of the world all of a sudden. Uh, I mean, maybe not all of a sudden in every case, but <laughs> the point is the borders do need to be tightened, but only... Only when the USA says, look, folks, we realize now that there is a fundamental conflict between growing the economy and protecting the environment that is required to maintain the economy. So now we're getting off the growth path. We're transitioning to a steady state economy. And so we must stabilize population and that will mean tightening borders uh, uh, as part of that. However, we then are going to take some of our resources and devote that to helping in these parts of the world where conditions are so awful that people are desperate to escape those conditions and find something better, in this case, into the, the United States. And other countries could be saying the same type of thing, you know. Now, that, to me, is a rational, steady-state position on immigration. What happens to the price of food in a steady-state economy? Is it still low as it is today? Does it need to go up? How does, that, how does the, the distribution in the food system work in a steady-state economy? Well, I'm afraid it's going to go up before there's uh, significant steady-state politics to... Uh, you know, actually conduce a, a steady state economy itself. And so our, you know, we, we abide by what we call the trophic theory of money. And trophic refer, refers to uh, the ecological concept of trophic levels in an ecosystem. And so in the human economy, you have, you might say, uh, three basic trophic levels. You have the 
agro-extractive sectors at the base, like we talked about earlier. And when you have enough surplus coming from that base, then you can have heavy manufacturing sector. That would be the next trophic level. And then lighter manufacturing, another trophic level. And so uh, the, the, when you have uh, plenty of surplus at that base, food prices are going to be low. Uh, but when that base starts to run out, like we're warning of, for the, we view the 21st century as the century of supply shock. That's what I called it with my book, you know, sometime back. Supply shock instead of future shock, you know, like that, that old famous book. Supply shock. It, it's not, not in that sense of uh, an instantaneous inward uh, shift of, of some single supply curve, like oil from the Middle East with OPEC. It's... However, the surprising and taking us by surprise, if we're not very aware and cognizant of the processes, they're surprised that all of a sudden, uh, because we weren't paying attention, supply curves left and right of waters, minerals, fisheries, petroleum products have been moved inward. And now then, with much uh, lesser surplus at that agro-extractive base, there's much less real money originating and we're going to have to pay the the price of food will go far higher because you know the demand is inelastic just to get back to this issue of price because you did say in a steady state economy the price of food would would have to go up to compensate for some of these other changes in the economy um and then getting back to an earlier part of our conversation does this also imply a more redistributive effect to make sure that the average percentage that the average person in let's say the united states spends on food doesn't go up i.e would you raise the minimum income along with the price of food because uh, are you redistributing to catch up the effect essentially before we get to that we have to clarify one thing about that the trophic theory of money and remember now that money originates uh, via the agricultural and extractive surplus at the base of the economy. And so when there's plenty of that surplus, well, then there's plenty of real money. Real meaning it's been adjusted for inflation. It's inflation resilient. Uh, if, on the other hand, we have an economic collapse uh, because we've run out of surplus at the base, then the, that huge quantity of money, which isn't immediately adjusted to the real economy, it's still out there for, for some X amount of time, that's inflated. And so that, I hope that provides a better explanation of why we're experiencing the inflation now. It's one of, it's one of the main reasons uh, and one of the most un, unrecognized. Now, can you repeat that, the follow-up question again? Sure, that's okay. Uh, the question that I was asking was, if you say in a steady state economy, there would be either a, a temporal or a permanent raise in the price of, of food. Would you? Does that come along with a rise in the average or the minimum income of the average person in, in the United States to account for that? Are you doing both so that the percentage of income spent on food remains roughly the same? Because otherwise, you for the poorest people, even in the United States, that will be a significant problem. Well, that's a matter of public policy and, and therefore politics. You, you can attempt to raise the minimum wage 
Uh, but don't forget, if you're suffering at this state point in history for lack of resources because you've been hell-bent on growth for a century and the resources are running low, then there is not as much real money, remember, adjusted for inflation, there's not as much real money forthcoming. There's inflated money, so in a nominal sense, sure, you can. the minimum wages can be raised and they probably would be uh, naturally uh, in a market economy if there aren't too many other distortions out there in fiscal policy that shift all of the wealth you know, into the already wealthy's hands. So I would say, Robert, that it, it, you know, a lot depends on when that transition to a steady state economy transpires. If it's conducted in time, uh, that is prior to a, a collapse of an economy, then it can be done with relative price stability. If it's done after the fact, when, you know, after a lengthy period of macroeconomic supply shock and uh, the inflation of the money supply because you no longer have the agro-extractive surplus at the base, well, then, no, there won't be price stability in just about any market. We're coming up, unfortunately, to the end of our time together. And I wanted to, before I let you go, ask you the same question that we ask of everybody who comes on the podcast, which is, um, if you could give one policy idea or one practical suggestion to create a more sustainable food system, what would it be? And if you don't mind, I'm going to take implementing steady state economics off the table because that's what we've just been discussing. Well, that... That does limit the range, all right. But I guess then I would say one of the top policy recommendations toward establishing a steady state economy, which is land conservation. You can't have every parcel of land devoted to economic production. That's, that's not sustainable. There's got to be a, maybe we could view it as a matrix of ecological integrity out there. And that includes... Uh, stocks of natural capital and funds of ecosystem services and oftentimes a stock of natural capital serves concurrently as a fund of ecosystem services so you may have a forest that's a a stock of timber it's a stock of wildlife uh, it, it, it uh, helps to maintain stocks of water you know aquifer water and and so on and it's concurrently a fund of ecosystem services that help to maintain an agricultural econ an agricultural base outside the forest like the pollinators and scavengers and soil aerators and you know the the species that are required uh, to have a healthy agricultural sector because the, the more and more we depend upon monocultures like uh, and, and, and monocultures that are dependent upon uh, very heavy loads of fertilizer and energy, you know, like Roundup Ready soybeans, for example. That's very dangerous, and it's very unstable. And so, you know, we need uh, the resilience provided by ecological integrity and a biodiverse matrix for the agricultural sector. Brian Check, Executive Director for the Center of the Advancement for the Steady State Economy. Thank you so much for joining Food Systems today. Well, thank you, Robert.
Take care. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our next episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app, as well as on Twitter at Forum for Ag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as forum events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day.